This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. All right, this is a really cool interview with Yaakov Oria. Uh, he is the winemaker for Psagot. He has his own label called Yaakov Oria and also Alpha Omega. It's pretty serious in the Israeli winemaking scene, very innovative, uh, very creative, uh, really passionate about what he's doing with white wine, also with red wine. Uh, he's really focusing on white wine for the most part. And super passionate about exploring the wine grape from all different angles and not limiting himself to what's traditionally been done with uh, winemaking. So have a listen. It's really special. The wines are excellent, and um, we're really going to be excited to see what he's coming up with in the future. Yaakov, hi. It's great to be sitting with you here today. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about how you got started with wine? Sure. Uh, I can say I woke up one day and just realized that I have to know everything about wine. I had no uh, aspirations of being a winemaker. I just wanted to know everything about the grape, the wine, the tasting, the valuation of it. I took courses. Eventually, I took a course of um, wine evaluation and wine producing and consumed me. And uh, from a hobby, it became a profession. What? How long ago was that? But you started. I started in two thousand and four. Like, so it's been a while. It's been a while. What were you doing before that? I was in construction. I was a project manager, civil engineering. In Israel. In Israel. So your 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 formal training is in your previous formal training is in civil engineering. Yes. Okay. So that's interesting. Would you say that you have like more of like that? of engineers approach to things where everything has like a, a method and it's it could be taken apart and kind of put back together again no but i think engineering did help me in the sense that when you taste wine you could refer to flavor and you could refer to structure and i find myself usually completely ignoring flavor flavor is from nature whatever is there in the grape you know i'm not going to put it in and if it came came structure have a lot to do with as a winemaker uh, body, balance, uh, austerity, all those things have to do with structure. <clears throat> and I pay a lot of attention to structure. That's really interesting because, like, um, when I, I wanted to ask you about this later, but just kind of coming up, when I, <clears throat> when I write a tasting note, or when I read a tasting note, it rarely helps me to, you know, what you call the grocery store, you know? This tastes like gooseberry, cranberry, red raspberry, um, blueberry, blackberry, boysenberry, elderberry, gooseberry, etc. Like it doesn't, it doesn't help me understand the wine in terms of what I'm going to experience. It's more kind of like um, you're you're providing some sort of like a parameter for what I should look out for, but it doesn't necessarily tell me, you know, how I should enjoy it. What is the experiential aspect of wine? More of like you know checking boxes so what you're saying it sounds like that those flavors are 
you know, you don't really have a say over that as a winemaker, but how those are presented in the, in the course of drinking the wine, then you do have more of a say over that part. I, I have a say of how they're presented. I have a say over um, the overall feeling of a wine. You enjoy a wine, a lot of times it's not because of its flavor. I don't think you'll really like a wine because it has cherries and don't like a wine because it has raspberries. You know, you'll find that in tasting notes, and I've rarely found a person that says, I'm a raspberry person. You know, mm. <laughs> I'm looking for wine with raspberries. <laughs> You're not going to find that. You're going to find people that, the only relevance those really flavors will have if you parent matching food and wine. So some foods will work with raspberries as opposed to cherries. So if you go to that resolution, it becomes relevant information. Yeah. Uh, I do find that people will like a wine because it's either heavy or today people, on the contrary, would like wine because it's light. That's structure. That's body. That's not flavor. Right. And I think I have a lot, you know, determining a harvest date will determine a lot if the flavors are, if the wine is big-bodied or lean. There I have a lot what, a lot of impact on my, on my approach. Have you already kind of resigned yourself to a certain flavor profile just by choosing the varietal and the vineyard itself? And then from there, you know, depending on how the quality of the vintage, you can dictate how those flavors are going to come across. So like, is, your, is your expression of flavor um, through choosing the vineyard and the varietal? Well, I produce wines in more than one place. And profile of the wines of Psagot, I aim for something very different than I aim for the wines of my private line, private line of wines. Um, the answer is no. I don't uh, choose varietal and vineyard to get flavor. I do the same things to get structure. That means I know what, let's say, Petit Syrah will give a wine. And I will want a vineyard that expresses what I personally think Petit Syrah is supposed to be in the best way. But again, that has to do also with flavor as an outcome, but also with structure as a decision. Um, that's funny that you mentioned about what you think a petite sirah is, is supposed to be. And everyone has, it seems that everyone has their own idea of what is um, you know, popular expression, which I, I personally believe is a little bit overused and abused as varietally true. Um, so going back to your background as a winemaker, can you just explain a little bit about how, you know, what was your wine tasting background previous to becoming like a formal winemaker that allowed you to set those um, parameters of what you felt were the most desirable attributes um, in wine? Well, to start with what you said in the beginning, I think that's the beauty of wine because everybody has a very clear and different opinion of what Cabernet Sauvignon is supposed to be and Petit Syrah is supposed to be, and Chardonnay is supposed to be. And we're all true to ourselves and to our opinions, and that makes it more interesting. Uh, my personal background, I think, led to the styles that I identify with today and try to aim for. Uh, my palate was uh, developed on Burgundy wines. Lean, acidic, um, full, of full of substance, but not overpowering reds. Very complex whites. Um, it was not Bordeaux, it was not Israeli wines, it was not big wines, it was not California wines. It gave me a very uh, 
specific structure in, in my brain to what a wine is supposed to be. I think it's helpful today. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of what we have today is like people enjoying wine, um, but without the context of where these wines that we're enjoying today fit in in the broader wine world. And what I think that's done is that it kind of taught people to only appreciate like expensive wine. I mean, you're the winemaker. I'm just, you know, I'm the consumer in, in the context of this, you know, setting. But would you say it's harder to make like a less expensive wine that's quality than a more expensive wine that's quality? Uh, definitely. One of the wines that I'm very proud of is a wine that I make in Psagot, the Sinai, which is mass produced relatively for Psagot. It's a relatively not expensive wine. It costs less than $20 in the United States on the shelves. Yeah, it's like $16, $17. And that's a real challenge because it's very, theoretically, you know, conceptually, it's very easy to take a top grape and give it a top treatment and get a top wine. It's easy. To be economical and take grapes that uh, you don't pay premium price for and therefore their quality is not at the top and still get a very good wine for them and maximize their potential by proper treatment and proper blending, uh, I think is a real challenge. Yeah, I would say. Um, what were the burgundies that really you know, changed your your vision of what wine is from maybe what you thought it was before and any specific vineyards, regions, producers? Oh, yes. yes. I, I must say that I was going to taste things. I relied on the halakha that you're allowed to taste non-kosher wines. And my tastings was of not kosher wines of the top estates in Burgundy that were imported by an importer to Israel. And there was one wine that really, I think, changed me as a winemaker. And that is uh, uh, Domaine Leroy, uh, Verso, Premier Cru, La Genevrière, 1985. That was imported into Israel? Yes. I mean, just for context, for everyone listening, like, Leroy is... is you know, if you were going to put it like in terms of cars, it would be probably something like a Lamborghini or, you know, it's not, I mean, if, if, a, if a Romane Conti would be maybe like more of a, a Rolls Royce or a Bentley, Leroy would be probably something like a Lamborghini. Like it's very exotic and very, very rare. By the way, Leroy has shareholdings in Domaine Romane Conti. Yeah, they used to be, Intertwine, and of course there was some. They still you know, are some, some French drama that got in the middle of that. And yeah. Yeah. No, I mean there used to be I think quite, quite intertwined, but now probably less so. So I went to a wine tasting, and that wine was on a tasting, and it just blew my mind. I didn't not talking about white wine. I didn't know the wine at all could be like that. And I think a lot of my inspiration to be to focus on white wines was really because of that wine. It just it just took me in a whole new course of life. Yeah, white burgundy can do that. What was it specifically? Was it like the, the length or the intensity or the complexity? Or I mean, I know that you're a structure guy, and with white burgundy, um, '85 happens to have been, as you know, like an excellent vintage for burgundy. Um, I'm, thinking maybe more so for red but white also they don't always go hand in hand as you know but um what was it about this wine an older chardonnay is going to have you know the freshness turns into more of like a, a you know the 
was fresh apple would become baked apple, you know. Um, fresh citrus would become more of a, you know, dulled sort of aroma, and then you might get some mild oxidative notes, nuttiness, etc. What at that point, and how old was the wine at that point when you tasted it for twenty odd years? It was yeah, it was around twenty five years, you know, yeah, something like that. So what was it that really kind of made you think two or three times? I think if you would, if I would taste the wine that caliber today, I would be able to answer you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I don't have words. Uh, it just put me in, in, in. It took wine from being something from a beverage to something that's three dimensional and multi layered and philosophical almost. Mm-hmm. Can't tell you what flavors I had there because I don't remember them. No, it was an experience of having. It was an experience just, yeah. that I just didn't know wine could be like that. A paradigm shift in in uh, you know, your personal enjoyment of that. Yes, yes. It was just something completely out of my realm of expectations. Is that, now we spoke earlier um, about kind of your inquisitive nature and your ability to, or your interest in not just utilizing what we're used to seeing from the grape, but more in terms of your orange wine philosophy, um, Utilizing the full grape to show what the what the full grape um, can can do, if, if uh, you know if used in its entirety. Would you say that like that kind of experience where you try wine, and it really awakens all the senses and all the dimensions and all these sensations? Is that kind of what's pushing you today to not just make wine, but to not to sound like you know, too flattering, but like reinvent like how we look at winemaking and how we look at um, handling the fruit in terms of like, like we were saying before, not just using the juice, but using the entire fruit and seeing what is like the potential of every aspect of, of the winemaking um, process. I, I, I don't think so. I don't, I'm not there to educate anybody or to teach anybody anything. What drives me is really personal uh, curiosity. Uh, talking about white wine, so in 2005, I tasted that Leroy. And two years later, I got the guts to start making white wines. And I told, brought in a teacher to teach me because I was doing till then only reds. Who was that? Itai Lahat. He's a wine consultant here in Israel. And uh, after learning for so many years, not so many years at that point, but learning a lot of focus that the skin ratio to juice and the phenolics of the skin are so important for the red wine, you go to a white wine, you're actually fermenting juice. The skin's thrown away out of the process. So in the same year that 2007, when I started to make white wines, it just bothered me. Not to teach anybody anything, but for myself. What what am I throwing away here? What am I missing? So my first experience with uh, skin macerated white wines was the same year I started to make white wines. So started to do it together, of curiosity. And the results are something that I care to share. It's not that I'm out there on an agenda to teach anybody anything. But the results, I think, are sometimes really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not. And then I keep them to myself. But a lot of times they are. So you, you started doing like the orange wines kind of independent of any sort of like the trend or the 
Oh, I mean, yes. It, it just was like, it was just, <clears throat> it was counterintuitive for you to dispose of um, the skins of the white wine when you were utilizing them for red wine production. Um, Correct. Yeah. I'll say more than that. I'll say the, 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 the natural, the wine, the orange wine movement in the world has two values. One of them is skin macerated. The second one is natural. There's a contest now of natural, of orange wines going on someplace in Europe. And I got the, as a producer of orange wines, I got the criteria to send my wines, and I can't because my wines are not natural. I'm not part of that movement. I never was. Uh, what happened was traditionally uh, these wines were produced in Georgia, and a gentleman called uh, Gravener from Friuli, northeast Italy, went to Georgia and stopped making traditional start making white wines the way they were made traditionally and started to make orange wines and he inspired his environment and in Italy they started to make it and it became a movement. And the movement has natural wines without sulfites and without additives and skin macerated and I had, had no knowledge of that. I started out of curiosity. What were they doing with those wines? I mean, how were they enjoying them and how were they drinking them? Well, I think today orange wines are doing better. I think at the time they were pretty faulty. If you make a natural wine and you don't have super grapes, uh, you can end up with a faulted wine. And a lot of the orange wines were faulty at the time. Uh, I, I didn't know the term even orange wine until so Daniel Rogov came to my winery and you know, I was making this wine from 2007, 2008, 2009. 2010, I thought I'd have something, again, that I care to share. So I made uh, three barrels of it and he came and he said, oh, this is orange wine. It's the first time I heard the term. So I, I don't really consider myself uh, an orange wine producer. It's a popular term, so I use it because it makes people understand what I'm talking about. But if I want to be accurate, I'm making uh, skin macerated white wines. They're not orange. Skin if you look macerated at, whites, yeah. And if you look at the color, they're not orange either. No, they're far from it. And a lot of a lot of the orange wines that we see there do have this, like, I mean, the, the name doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, they're, it's a dark, you know. That's oxidization. It's right. not the grape. If you don't use sulfites, that's what you're going to end up with. Right. Sometimes, in, in good producers, the tannin of the skin and the, and, and, the, and the seed compensate. So the skin, the wine doesn't deteriorate, it just gets oxidized. And a lot of times, it does get faulty. You could find a lot of pretty terrible orange wines out there. And some of them are really impressive. Fascinating. Right. Yeah, we tasted... Um... We had a vertical, basically. Um, That's right. <laughs> we had I didn't a, think of that. Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, we had a 2014. I have my notes. Quite, I mean, I wouldn't say my notes are extensive, but at least they're uh, they did cover everything. We had a 2014 blend Alpha Omega, uh, which is the um, <coughs> standard Alpha Omega blend. Is going to have Roussan, Semillon, and Viognier, and uh, which is the most out of that. Anyway, I didn't ask you before. They're a third. Each of them does serves a different purpose. Equal parts, roughly. Equal parts. The Roussan gives spice, and the Viognier gives fruit, and the Semyon gives ageability. The body. Yeah. And the body, yes. Yeah. So we had a 14, um, and then we had a 15, and then we had a 16. Um, and, I mean, you know, if I was lining them up and tasting them, you know, I guess blind or, or double blind. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have related them all to each other. 
Okay, I, I would connect the 14 and the 16 and the 15 put aside. Right. The 15 <clears throat> was affected by uh, a floor, which is a layer of yeast that grows on top of the wine and gives sherry its uh, typical flavors. And it has in the wine sherry flavors because of that yeast that grew on top of the wine. So I put that aside. The 14 and the 16 are pretty consistent, in my opinion. The difference is... Um, the treatment, and I think it has to do with experience. Uh, when I started off, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> when I started off, I wanted to have uh, a deep expression. Right. So I let the skin uh, fully macerate for real long periods of time. I think in an average it was 74 days uh, on the skins, and that gives the wine a very specific profile of... Um, Loses all its fruit. You get heavy spice, minerality, smoked meat. The just for context, um, what would be the maceration time for everyone um, of like a red wine? The we between eleven and fifteen days on an average, and like three weeks, like twenty-one days if you're already keeping it a long time on the skin. And so for also for a standard white wine that we're used to, non-skin macerated, that time would be zero. Right. Well, if you're talking about a white wine, right, you, you get rid of the skins before fermentation. Right. The maceration I'm talking about is after fermentation is completed. Right. So this is a radically different kind of approach than what. Oh yes, right. but just doing the full full um, uh, fermentation with skins is radically different. To extend that even more is what you get into 14. I was trying to bring the expression to the fullness, and I realized later on that. That fullness is uh, is fascinating, but also challenging, because right. you find that it will f not match every kind of food. It's a wine to contemplate. It's a philosophical wine. It's not an everyday drinking wine because it's so deep and complex. We came up with um, together some kind of interesting descriptors for um, now. As much as we, I don't think that either of us advocate the grocery store list, but. This is more of like a shook list, not a grocery store list. You know? I mean, right. We came up with like um, uh, cornichon pickle for the 16. Uh, you said uh, about salami. On the 14, right. On the 14, a little bit of like a, I don't know if they, this exists, but like a smoked honey sort of a aroma. Uh, I was getting on the 14. Um, we also had a conversation about um, dried lemons how those are kind of uh, you know rehydrated in, in cooking and soups and stews and whatnot and how that was kind of detectable. Um, and before we talk about Semillon, which um, which is another passion of yours, we had a different wine, more of a different series. The uh, which for me to keep them all straight, I, I use your term the user friendly orange wine, user friendly skin macerated series, which was a hundred percent Chenin Blanc, two thousand seventeen vintage. And that was a wine that you could you can drink like an earnest. You don't have to. You you certainly do think about it, but it's not a wine where you're sitting there and being like, "Geez, you know, is it dill pickle or is it you know Israeli pickle?" It's it's more of like a practical wine that um, has a strong flavor, a unique flavor, but um, you know has a has a character that is you know very kind of a drinkable. It's drinkable, but it, it, it's drawing you in, like, what are you going to taste next, you know? Um, 
Which one do you think, in terms of the, those two, the user friendly and like the full on, which one you would you say you gravitate one more than the other, or just maybe? I think it has to do with evolution. When I, I started off in 2007 and I was experiencing, and I got to a point where I said, okay, now I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm going to make a real impressive wine. Um, so I did. Right. But so what? It's not enough. If, if, if you want to really understand uh, the idea of, a full, of the, the full story of the grape from A to Z, or as I call the series Alpha to Omega, uh, you can't go to that extreme. You gotta let the pull yourself out of the story, put the oak out of the story, put put your macerations even out of the story, and just let the grape express itself. And I think to me, today, I'm really fascinated by the full expression of the varietal rather than a complex blend that I could create. So I do create it. I like creating it. I think it's a very good wine. <clears throat> but I think its context and its appreciation could only come after you go through a stage of appreciating what the varietal is in whole. Then later on you could under appreciate a blend. I think it's uh, counterproductive to start from that. You're saying because you, you know, once you learn the individual contributions of, of a given varietal, at that point you're able to appreciate um, what it would what it would contribute to a blend. Correct. And yeah. what, I, what I plan to do in 2018, this coming harvest, is what I did with the Chenin Blanc, expand to other varietals. I'm curious. I, if, if you know, I don't know how it's going to come out. I made a, the first year I made orange or skin macerated white wines, I did a Ford Strominer. Ten years later, it tasted beautifully. Because it, it's a grape that usually is just too much of everything. Mm-hmm. But if you add to it the edgeability coming from the tannin and you give it 10 years in a bottle, it becomes a fascinating product. Uh, I would like to do a whole line of varietals. And we'll see what happens. Um, this would be also, I guess, aside from your day job, would be the first year that you're kind of getting back into your first love of Chardonnay. Had you done much Chardonnay outside of uh, mass-produced wine, like on your personal stuff? Well, yes, I did. I did. Um, I did orange chardonnays initially, and uh, produced uh, chardonnays in Psagot and Emekaela and my own winery, Asif, at the time. Um, going back to doing it now in an orange version is exciting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that for you, like the orange version or you know whichever, if it's the full on or the user friendly, it's just. It's it's the ultimate expression of the total fruit. In your, in your, uh... Yes, but I, I, as you're asking the question, I'm thinking to myself that there's must there has to be something beyond that. Why do you have to express the total expression of a fruit? If you want to, if you want to have a total expression of a walnut, you can eat this. You can eat the peel also, right? But you don't. You get rid of the peel, and you eat the, you eat the nut. So the idea of of having a full expression by itself. Sometimes it's not really very good. If you consider nuts as an example, but I think behind that is is an idea of integrity. Um, not my integrity, integrity of, of 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 the grape. The grape is here as a whole. We learn to appreciate it with red wines. You will never consider 
to evaluate Chateau Lafitte or Domain Romani Conti that we just mentioned according to their rosé, according to the juice made from the, the red grapes. You want the full red grape and then you could express the terroir and the varietal and the growing area and, and the producer. You need, to, you need the full story for the expression. And I think uh, that whole world of values is lacking in the, in the white wine world. And the integrity of the white wine world is if is asking for it. And it takes getting used to. You know, when I say user-friendly, it's it doesn't have all the, the faults of orange wines, and it doesn't have the effect of long macerations and oak and oxidization. It's still a wine that's with body and with tannin, and it's still going to take getting used to. But, but I think it's... It has, it has a justification. I mean, yeah, I objectively, would say it has it has its place in the in the wine scene. It, it serves a purpose, and it's also, I mean, maybe not a side benefit, but it's also enjoyable, which I think is, I mean, you know, the best part. Um, if it wouldn't be enjoyable, it would be like walnuts. Yeah, I mean, I love walnuts. I don't eat the rind, <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. Um, well. So wait, so if you, I mean, the fruit for you is like the biggest part to make sure that we're fully expressing the potential of what the varietal has to offer. How much of a involvement or say do you have in the day-to-day farming practices of, I know that you have your own vineyards that you are in charge of, but if you have to source, do you, do you just kind of source based on your understanding of what that wine grower is going to do or do you take more of an active role in, in, uh, you know, in the uh, processes to ensure a certain outcome to the best of your ability? Well, there's an ideal world and there's reality. Uh, if it's a product that grape that they use consistently and in considerable volumes, then I could have control. I take a contract over a small plot of the vineyard and I'm involved. If I use very small quantities, it's, it's not realistic to do that. Then you just be a low man on the totem pole in that transaction. Well, I do have control as far as who I, who I ask to grow the grapes for me or who I buy from. Right. I don't just go to everybody and do it. I, people, I do it from people that I pretty much rely on what they're doing and have respect for their work. But uh, a lot of times it's experimental. Like this year I'm going to do the so I have 600 kilo. I'm going to end up with around 400 bottles. If it comes out really good, then I'll work on getting a bigger vineyard. If it doesn't, then I can, what can I do when somebody has a big vineyard and gives me 600 kilo? He's got to hope and rely on the fact that he knows what he's doing. Just the way it goes. Um, so we tried, um, we tried, I mean, some of the wines that I tried um, with our wine club in San Diego, we had the Orma Ophel, which is a white wine produced um, entirely from red grapes. Um, and the 17 is significant wine. It's a, it's a, it's a medium body, but maybe medium plus. Lower alcohol because of the um, earlier harvest date you were saying. Correct, it's 11% alcohol. Right, 11, 11, 11 and change maybe. No, um, no it was 11? Okay, I changed my notes, sorry about that. Um, and it was, I mean, that, that I think is a great kind of baseline to what you're offering because it's it's also like um, it's it's 
it's almost the other side of the coin from skin macerated white wine. What I'm trying to say is that um, if if skin macerated white wine is a zenith of white wine, then in terms of in your perspective, being a, a real white wine guy, having a white wine made from top quality red grapes would also be like you know, the kind of the pinnacle of that expression. Too many words. Uh, no, I'm, th I'm just thinking of it. <laughs> uh, the truth is, I don't know if it's a pinnacle of an expression. There's not a, it's not a philosophy behind it. It's just, it's just a passion. Um, you'll find blend de noirs here and there in the market. Still wines. I'm not talking about sparkling wines. Sparkling wines you have a lot in Champagne. I'm talking about still wines. You'll find here and there, but usually there are a varietal, and. Um, they're not really, a lot of times they're not really, really blend de noir, they're light rosé. Mm -hmm. um, I think the fact that you have a blend here, which is really a GSM blend, uh, makes a wine, again, talking about structure, well built. Well built, it ages well, it's complex, it's layered, it's interesting. Uh, it, again, it has justification to stand on its own two feet and not just be a byproduct of red wine or experiment. I did it the first year uh, as, as a special edition, but I liked it, so I'm continuing to do it. Yeah. Why do you think that the kosher world has all of a sudden um, kind of realized that white wine is an entity, you know, is, a, is a force to be reckoned with? I mean, we spoke about together <clears throat> a few times about um, about German Riesling and how it's such an amazing institution that is still a little bit misunderstood in terms of what it has to offer. It's not just one more kiddush wine. It's not something that you, you know, put into a uh, a beer stein and chug it because it's nice and sweet and fruity. It's it's a it's a proper wine that happens to be excellent and easy to drink. But if you if you make light of it, then you miss all the nuances. Um, is the market or is the consumer just kind of, you know, advancing their knowledge to the point where they kind of realize the potential of white wine, or is that something that um, was brought on by another? I mean, do you have any idea? Any comment about that? Uh, I can answer that in length. I'll try to do it in less length. <laughs> uh, in, in very short, there's really two wine cultures that developed. One of them is that the wine became sacred, and the other one, the wine became a commodity. Europe, where water sources were polluted, if you didn't drink alcohol, people suffered or died. Like a thousand years ago, so people drank alcohol, whether it was wine or beer in colder countries. And in places where the waters were kept in um, in storage and not polluted easily, uh, the wine became sacred. Our culture come from the Middle East, where we did not have a lot of water, and the water was kept aside, the wine became sacred. So it's it it something that we use for special occasions. You bring it as a gift. We try to buy, bring a, a fancy wine uh, for Shabbat. Uh, it's not a commodity. Rarely do I find people in our culture uh, drinking wine every day, surely not for lunch. You know, it's not something that we drink every day. So, is that something to strive for, or is that just maybe it's, it's, a fact. it's not us? 
it's 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 not 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 for it, not against it. Just you know, talking about a fact. And I think in one of the outcomes of that 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 culture that makes a wine sacred that you want a wine that's wow, and therefore a wine that's very ripe, and very oaked, and full-bodied, uh, is impressive. And I think that was the drive of wines for for quite a while. And I think people, as they start drinking wine, not just using it as a, a wow effect and a gift, uh, something always open on special occasions, something that they start drinking regularly, then in fact their palate gets tired. And um, what was good 10 years ago as a wow effect becomes too much today. People are looking for something more restrained, more refined, more something that is enjoyable as a beverage. In fact, shifting towards uh, wine that's more of a commodity. I wouldn't say it is, because we're not going to start drinking wines every day because of what I'm saying. But yet, the style of the wine is affected by it. Yeah. And, and uh, I think that assumes we'll, what you're asking about, also about the Riesling. You know. It doesn't have to be a big, massive, oaked, Chardonnay, oxidized, yellow. It could be a lot of refined flavors, very different enjoyable i think that what we're i agree with you and i i like what you're saying about sort of like a communal palate fatigue against you know the the big and the woody um i happen to feel that you know once you get to that spectrum of wine where everything is big and everything is goofy like it really narrows and you i mean despite what you might read like it's really hard to tell the difference between you know different vintages you know, and different different regions. Once you get in a certain style, because it's really masked. It's really you know the 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 origin of the wine and the and the um, and the quality of the fruit is is masked by all these different um, components like oak and and, uh, and toast. And, and I think even before that, I think ripeness masks itself. There's something about overripe fruit that dominates terroir, dominates varietal, dominates vintage. And this is something that the uh, some of the old Israeli wines in the, the early 2000s. I mean, I remember pouring a, a bottle down the drain that we bought on vacation up north. Um, I don't remember which one, or if I did, I wouldn't say. Um, it was just, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm sitting here across from you drinking your dessert wine. I've got nothing against sweet wine, but a, a red wine that is sweet. That's supposed to be a table wine. It's, it doesn't work. You know, it's a matter of what varietal it might say in the bottle. You know, it, it just tastes like something else. Um, so I think that you're right. Ripeness is definitely an enemy. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. Where I think that maybe it's like you're saying, maturing to a point where we can appreciate that there's more to just more to wine than what we've been used to. Finding the place, if it's not going to be every day, well, and maybe what we eat is going to change and to accommodate like, you know, different styles of wine. You know, if, if you want to drink a Riesling, like you can't have, um, you can have anything, but I'm saying like a chicken soup, you know, if you want something kind of stereotypical, you know, I found a, a good pairing for chicken soup. It was sherry? A, sherry would be one. Didn't have it in the house at the time, but the one that I, what I did have was a, um, was a like a medium to light body, uh, you know, Bordeaux blend, 
California. And something about the texture, the like the fruit wasn't so strong, but the texture and the acidity really cut through the um, the richness of the soup. You know, mm-hmm. um, not a wine that you would call oaky, not a wine that you'd call kind of you know goopy, but it's a uh, you know it works if you if you reverse engineer what you want to eat into what you want to drink, then everything's going to change. It's very hard to match uh, wine to food. It's a lot easier to match food to wine. Yeah. As we as we have more wines that we want to drink, I think that we'll start adjusting what we want to eat in terms of uh, in, in terms of looking at that instead of, you know, well, I have this, what's going to go with my brisket? Exactly. That's the way to do it. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, well, listen, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. It was great seeing you. Um, I don't know that I expected our, our meeting together to be in a such a bizarre location. We're here in Paris today. Uh, <laughs> but hey, you know, whatever works. Drinking some of the finest red wine produced and the mother in the country of the mother of all good wine is uh, says a lot. So I think it's good on you, and it's, uh, it's great to have you here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers.